What would you do if I told you that you were being stalked by a serial killer today? That uh, an active shooter is on the loose in Ottawa and he's hunting you. Would you stay home and hide as best as you can? Or would you bunker down, prepare to fight? You flee to the countryside as quick as you can. What if I told you that the killer who's after you didn't just pick you at random, but that he's got a long-standing grudge against your family? That for whatever reason, he's embittered about stuff that happened in the past, and he's enraged that, that you even exist anymore, so he's after you because you bear your family's name. He's bent on wiping you out. Did you know that you are actually in greater danger than that right now. You do have an enemy, and he is out to get you, prowling even today, every day. He hates you, and he hates your family name, especially if you belong and you bear the name of Christ. And he is bent on spiritually destroying you so that you don't just die, but you end up in hell. We tend to be blind to this invisible, insidious danger these days. So we need it to be revealed to us. We need our eyes opened to the danger that we are in. And that's what I believe Revelation 12 can do for us today. So if you have a Bible or you take a Bible, let's open up there together now. Revelation 12. Now, this chapter is a very unique chapter, even by Revelation's standards. It covers a vast period of time, probably all of Earth's history and much of its future. It tells a story to us with spectacular imagery that would fit in with most modern science fiction. But there isn't anything fictional about this story. It's the true story of our past, present, and future. It's a dramatic, even scary story. But don't worry, kids. This story has a happy ending. And Revelation 12 doesn't just expose the danger that we are currently in, but it also helps explain the difficulties that believers have faced for millennia now. And we're, not, we're going to talk a fair amount about the devil today. And I know that some of you might scoff at that not believing in a real devil. And I don't have time to go into convincing you of his existence, though if God exists, there is no reason to believe other supernatural beings like the devil don't. So I will caution you just to, to not dismiss, dismiss something out of hand just because you haven't seen it. Follow along with me here, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. So in his vision, John sees this sign appear in heaven. A sign is something that points beyond itself to another greater reality. It's a symbol. So who was this woman? What does she represent? It's not likely Mary, as we might guess. 
The, the sun, moon, and stars imagery may remind us of Joseph's dream back in Genesis where his father, mother, and, and, and siblings were envisioned this way as the sun, moon, and stars. Thus, it's very possible that this woman represents the people of Israel with its 12 tribes. But there are good reasons, I believe, to see her as representing God's people as a whole under both Old and New Covenant, faithful Israel and, faithful, and the faithful church. But anyway, this woman is quite the sight when John sees her. She is clothed in the sun, positively radiant. She's got some kind of dominion with the moon under her feet, and she's got a crown of 12 stars for 12 tribes or 12 apostles or both. It's no wonder John sees this and describes her as a, a great sign. God's people are glorious here. And the most important thing to notice about the woman, though, is that she is pregnant and in labor. Verse 2 says, She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. As we'll see in a minute, she's about to give birth to the Messiah, or the Christ. One of my friends pointed out to me that there is an ironic reversal going on here. That this woman, while experiencing the, the curse of painful childbirth, is giving birth to the ultimate deliverer from the curse in Christ. But then, enter the antagonist, the bad guy, the enemy, in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, or crowns. Now notice, the dragon is another powerful sign, John says, but not a great sign like the woman was. She has true glory given to her by God. The dragon just has self-made counterfeit glory. If there's any doubt who this dragon represents, verse 9 makes it clear. Call him, we'll read this in a minute, but it calls him that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, for the devil to appear as a dragon is meant to strike fear or alarm. That he's great tells us he's imposing. That he's red means he's murderous. He's got seven heads with seven crowns and ten horns, which all reflect authority and, and power. But why would he have seven heads and seven crowns, the number of perfection? Is the devil perfect? Does he have perfect authority? Of course not. In chapter 5, the lamb had seven horns, which symbolized perfect strength. In chapter 19, Jesus is described as having many diadems or crowns. What we have here in chapter 12 is a devilish imitation of God. And we know Satan always wanted to be like God. Here he is imitating, he's pretending to be divine with godlike powers. Nevertheless, we see behind the curtain. You know, he's not God, he's just a dragon. Verse 4 says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, this, of course, is not saying Satan literally swept stars from heaven at some point. This is poetic. Satan is attempting something so catastrophic it shakes the universe. 
Now, we're not sure what event this picture specifically represents. It could be when Satan convinced many other angels to join in his heavenly revolt, becoming demons at that time. We can more easily tell what the rest of verse 4 is talking about. It says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Can you picture that in your mind? This scene is intentionally trying to elicit dread. It's a shocking, grotesque picture. A woman writhing in pain, preparing to, to push her baby out. But instead of a, a doctor or midwife being positioned to catch the baby, a dragon is standing there, waiting to, poised to pounce on the baby so that he could devour it, it says. He wants to eat it. It's revolting, disgusting, horrifying. When you think of nativity scenes, you think of usually unrealistically serene people, animals, and angels, right? You don't tend to picture an ominous, dark power brooding over the stable. That's what's going on here. The likely parallel from a human perspective would be Herod's bloody rampage on baby boys. The devil was certainly behind that dark day attempting to kill the young Christ, just as he was behind every plot of Jesus to kill, to kill Jesus throughout the Lord's earthly life. Now, there's an interesting thing to mention here. That this picture very much resembles a number of ancient mythological stories especially the birth of the Greek god Apollo. When Apollo's mother was pregnant, she was chased by the dragon known as Python. But after she's rescued, Apollo is born, Apollo turns around and kills Python. Very similar. In John, this would have been a very familiar story in John's day. So we wonder, why would John tell the, the true story of Jesus in mythological form? Grant Osborne explains it well. He says the purpose of this is evangelistic. To say that, the Greeks, say that what the Greeks have known only as myth has now been actualized in history. One can say that the New Testament demythologizes Greco-Roman myth by historicizing it. What the pagans longed for in their myths has now become true in Jesus. The, Im the biblical imagery of a, a woman's child standing opposed to a serpent also predates these myths, of course. Going all the way back to Eden, when God warned the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The point for us today is a rather simple one. Satan wanted to destroy the Messiah. He wanted to ruin God's redemption plan. But here's the good news. The dragon has been thwarted from crushing Christ. The dragon was decisively thwarted, stopped from crushing Christ. We see this as, as the dragon lurks, the woman gives birth. In verse 5 says, she gave birth to a male child. That's Christmas right there, by the way. Like, the male child coming out of God's people was none other than Christ Jesus. Also notice, John calls both the woman and the dragon signs. 
but the child is not. Right? The first two players in this drama point to realities beyond themselves. The third does not point to another reality. He is the reality. Other characters may be symbolic, but he was an actual male child, a son. And as the Messiah, he was destined to rule the nations. As she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a reference to Psalm 2, 9. It could also be translated as shepherd the nations. Either way, the rod of iron is not something scary unless you're Jesus' enemy. It speaks of his absolute strength, his leadership, his ability to judge and rule. And we go, well, none of that will matter if the dragon gets to him first and eats him. It's true. That didn't happen. He was thwarted. It says, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The child swept up by God the Father, and he, the, the one destined to rule, is set on a throne. Now, if you think this skips over a bunch of stuff, you're right. It jumps from Jesus' birth directly to his ascension 30-plus years later. And in between, we've got Jesus' entire life, ministry, death, resurrection. Like, why would John smash everything together like this? Well, it's because of what he wants to emphasize for us. He wants to emphasize Jesus' triumph and his destiny to rule here. Like, Jesus was born to defeat the devil and to be king. Danny Aiken comments, the ascension, when he returned to heaven, is the unquestionable proof that Satan was defeated and that he could not prevent Christ from rising from the dead and ascending back to his Father, where he now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, perhaps the place Satan coveted when he fell. Now, while the child is clearly the hero of this story, he's not the total focus here. The woman is. Because John wants to, to highlight her situation or fate in all this. Like, what happens to God's people after the Messiah returns to heaven? Look, verse 6. So after the child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, the wilderness is a very special location in Scripture. Think of the Israelite slaves fleeing Egypt and into the wilderness. It would be a place of testing for them, of difficulty, of temptation. It wasn't the promised land. But at the same time, it was a place of miraculous provision and protection, intimacy with God. It wasn't very hospitable, but God prepared it for his people, and he used it for good. Deuteronomy 1, 31 said, In the wilderness you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. We talked a bit about the 1260 days last week, that number. There are a multitude of theories about them. No one can say for certain what they refer to. 
But I believe what makes the most sense is that they symbolically refer to the full time between Jesus' first and second advents, which is an unspecified time of hardship before God steps back in to save his people. As a church, we may be metaphorically in the wilderness now, awaiting our promised land, and yet God continues to nourish us, lavishing his grace on us, giving us security in midst of the hardships or the enemy's attacks. How have you experienced that, experienced the, the care and nourishment of God lately? I hope you have. I'm very rarely a fan of Christian artwork. It speaks deeply to some people, just not me. But a while ago, I saw a modern drawing by Grace Remington that really moved me. And we'll put it up on the screen for you. It's, uh, you can try to nitpick stuff, I don't care. <laughs> but I, I was really moved by this. Now, I believe that the woman in Revelation 12 rep does not represent either Eve or Mary. But Jesus is the, the seed of Eve. He's the son of Mary, born of woman, like Galatians 4 tells us. And I think this picture beautifully captures how the long-awaited seed not only brought healing and consolation for the brokenness of the fall, but also how Christ's birth brought victory over the serpent. Did you see their feet? Like if, you, if you're ever discouraged by your sin, ever dismayed by the evil that is all around us, take heart in this. The child has been born. He now reigns victorious. And in that, in that very same king cares for us now and is coming back for us again one day. Take heart. All right, so we got God one, Satan zero. Keep score with me as we continue. Okay, verse seven. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. When did this happen? Some say this flashes all the way back to when Satan first fell from heaven. Some say this happened during Jesus' time on earth as the gospel played out. And some say this is a future event that will happen during the end times. I can't say for sure. What we do know for certain is the final outcome of this conflict. Look at it. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So what we have here is the dragon has been defeated out of heaven's courts. The dragon has been defeated. The devil has been kicked out, out of heaven's courts. Verse 7, again, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now this might be hard for us to picture, but we are meant to picture warfare breaking out. In our mind's eye. Angels, mighty supernatural warriors taking sides in this epic clash. A dragon's on one side. Michael, one of the chief archangels, on the other. We should see weapons flashing, armies maneuvering. They hear the deafening roar of battle. 
Star Wars or, or galactic superhero movies have nothing to do on this battle. However long this took, the good guys won. It says, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. He's banished. In this passage, John repeats seven times that Satan was thrown down or forced out of heaven. But what does that mean, that Satan was, was defeated out of heaven? Why does this matter? Well, first, consider just who he is. As verse 9 said, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He has been the chief villain in our story from day one. He was the ancient serpent in Eden. He, he's called the devil, which literally means at the accuser or slanderer. His proper name is Satan, which means adversary or enemy. And he hasn't just deceived Adam and Eve, inciting our fall from grace. It says he's the deceiver of the whole world. That's who he is. But also consider where he was. At some point, he had direct access to God's throne room. The most powerful place in the universe. Not that God would fall for his lies. Satan still clung to some semblance of power and influence there. Like think of the damage he wrought in Job's life from having access there. Verse 10 calls him another name as well, the accuser of the brothers, or the accuser of the brothers and sisters. The, the devil couldn't destroy Christ, so he's turned his attention to Christ's people. And one of the chief ways he'd love to take us down is through accusation, by either lying about us or by telling the truth about how bad we really are. Good news, though. He's been defeated in this, too. Said, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. So, what is it saying? With the dawning of the gospel of Christ, Satan is trounced and he's bounced. God's salvation is won, his power is displayed, his kingdom is, is founded, and Christ's authority is firmly established. And notice, all this officially comes when the opposition is removed. Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. God's already won. Satan's already lost. We've got God two, Satan zero, right? He's now restricted only to earth and has lost access to God's throne to accuse us there. That is really good news. I think we have a hard time grasping just how good that news is, that our enemy has lost a huge part of his power. He's been crippled. He's been restricted. Heaven erupts in praise that he can no longer accuse believers as he once did. And if heaven's that excited, perhaps we should be as well. Praise the Lord for his victory. 
Now, you may think, well, it's great and all that Jesus and his angels, Michael, they all defeated Satan back then. What about us? How can we defeat him now? I'm glad you asked. Can actually only defeat the devil now because he's already defeated. See, the dragon is conquered through sacrificial death. The dragon has been and will be conquered through sacrificial death. In verse 11, the voices from heaven actually say God's people have conquered the devil. Well, kind of. We will conquer him, but not because of ourselves. It says, and they, for the brothers and sisters, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Again, right when Jesus appeared to lose, he actually won. Things are not how they appear. It's his blood, the emblem of his death, that has conquered the devil. And his blood isn't just instrumental in saving us, it's indispensable. Think about it. Without Jesus' blood washing us clean of our own evil, every one of Satan's accusations would stand up before the Lord as valid. It's only because of the cross that we stand forgiven before God. And it's still the same blood of the Lamb that enables us to overcome Satan every day now. I love how Don Carson puts this. He says, Satan accuses Christians day and night. It is not just that he will work on our conscience to make us feel as dirty, guilty, defeated, destroyed, weak, and ugly as he possibly can. You ever feel like that? Yeah. It's something worse. His entire ploy in the past is to accuse us before God day and night, bringing charges against us that we know we can never answer before the majesty of God's holiness. What can we say in response? Will our defense be, oh, I'm not all that bad? You will never beat Satan that way. Never. What you must say is, Satan, I'm even worse than you think, but God loves me anyway. He has accepted me of the blood of the Lamb. You don't have the, the blood of Jesus purifying you today. You need it. Trust in Jesus. There is no other way to protect you from the dragon's evil wrath. Actually, there isn't even another way to protect you from God's holy wrath. But if you have the blood of the Lamb today, it's cleansed your heart. You have everything you need for the battle at hand. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? <laughs> no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
through him who loved us. We conquer because of the blood of the Lamb. We also conquer, it says, through the word of our testimony. It says they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's not talking about us sharing our personal testimonies all the time. That's talking about us bearing testimony to Christ all the time. Like, Jesus saved me. He can save you too. How does that conquer the devil? Well, think about it. Spreading the gospel advances the kingdom, and as God's kingdom expands over people's hearts, Satan's kingdom shrinks. So if God has saved you, if he has cleansed you, if he has brought you into the kingdom, is the word of your testimony getting out one way we fight? And you don't have to hide. Our greatest enemies have already been conquered. And even if we lose our lives, we've already won. Look at it again. It says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now, not all Christians are or will be martyrs, but all should be willing to be. A lot of this comes down to what we really love most. If we love this life, we're going to have a really hard time standing up or speaking out for Christ because it might cause us to sacrifice things of this life. But if we love the Lord, the Lamb, more than our own lives, we'll be willing to sacrifice anything for Him. He sacrificed everything for us after all. Plus, we'll realize that sacrifice is the path to true victory. If the devil can kill us and still not defeat us, then he has no power over us at all. I want to live as Christ and to die as gain to be true of me. What about you? If you do, cling to the cross, to the blood of the Lamb. Speak boldly of Christ and love him more than anything, even your life. And if you do this, you'll be unstoppable. Mortal, yes, but undefeatable like Jesus was. Verse 12 says, Therefore, rejoice. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. We got God three, Satan zero. But, but, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Problem. We don't dwell in heaven yet. This is a serious warning to us. Satan has been restricted to earth. That means we're not out of the danger zone yet. And as we'll see, Satan is more hell-bent than ever on destroying us. All that said... 
The dragon is being frustrated in destroying God's people. The devil has been, is being, and will be frustrated in destroying God's people. But isn't that good news? Well, yes. And no. Of course it's good news that, that Satan will not be able to ultimately harm us. But in the meantime, that, this, that is making him angrier than ever. And he can't ultimately harm us, but he can harm us. So, whoa, beware. Whenever we have a, a short time to do something, it makes us take action, right? I, I recently took a, a book out of the library that had a long waiting list of people waiting to read it after me. But what that meant is I couldn't renew it. I had a deadline. I only had one month to finish it, and it was 600 pages long. So I went at it furiously. I read as fast as I could, as late into the night as I could, and I still ran out of time with about 100 pages to go. But I tried hard. Satan knows his time is rapidly running out. He knows his days are numbered. He already lost heaven. It's only a matter of time before he loses the earth as well. And so, he has gone to work furiously and ferociously. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This really explains much of why, if Jesus has already won, why things are still so bad here on earth for God's people. Like, why do God's people still suffer so much if we're more than conquerors? Well, the, the devil may not be the sole reason, but he certainly is a main reason. Daryl Johnson explains, why are things so bad? Because the dragon is ticked. He is angry because he has been thrown down and because he knows he has only a short time. No, the dragon knows the gospel. The devil believes the proclamation that Jesus Christ is coming and that the time is short. The devil believes better than most Christians. It is why he is so active. He is going to get as much dirty work done as he can. If we really believe that Jesus is coming and can break through in all his glory at any time, would we not also be more eager to do the work of the kingdom? Great question. If you know World War II history, you know that the war was basically won for the Allies on D-Day, June 6, 1944. Over 150,000 troops successfully stormed Normandy's beaches. There's basically no way the Nazis were recovering from that defeat. However, that doesn't mean they went quietly. They went down without a fight. Hitler refused to surrender. And they still wreaked all kinds of destruction as they retreated, including waging some of the, the worst battles of the war. Likewise, as Johnson adds, the suffering of the church in the world is not a sign of Satan's victory. It is a sign of his realization of defeat. That's why he's so full of fury. And yet, despite his fuming, the devil is still being 
frustrated. Look what happens. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. This again describes God preserving his people, protecting them from Satan. If the devil's like a serpent or snake, God makes his people like a bird to fly away. Whether it is past, present, or future, it speaks of God's loving care for his people. But that doesn't stop the devil from trying to take us out. Verse 15 says, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. He wants to destroy the woman, to, to drown her, to, to sweep her away for good. Are you aware that this is his desire for you? Right now, if you follow Christ, he wants to destroy you. Some believe this verse is an echo of Satan trying to wipe out Israel's promised seed in Egypt. Others think that the flood represents an army, persecution in general, or evil speech from his mouth. Whatever the case, his intent is clear. Total destruction. And the result is also clear. Total failure. Look at 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Foiled again. When Israel was delivered from Egypt at the Red Sea, they sang to the Lord, You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. See, when the devil threatens God's beloved people, God comes to their rescue. In 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul declared that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Great declaration. However, by all accounts, Paul was beheaded. So does this mean that that promise wasn't kept? No. God never promised that we wouldn't die. But he did promise that we would be rescued. That we'd be rescued from every evil deed. Rescued from death itself. That's what's happening here. At the end of Revelation 12, we're still facing the devil. And we are forever protected from the wrath of the Lamb, which we saw back in chapter 6. But we do still face the wrath of the dragon now, and we will until the end. However, his wrath is ultimately going to be frustrated. He can't destroy us. Sometimes, God will deliver us completely from the evil one, like we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes he will deliver us in the midst of the evil one's attacks, helping us to stand firm against the devil's schemes, or always providing a way of escape from the devil's temptation. And sometimes he will deliver us after we've gone through the war. We're beaten up, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And he'll bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. The dragon is being frustrated 
in destroying God's people. Which means that the score here now reads God 4, Satan 0. It's a clean sweep. And yet Satan fights on. Last verse. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. Basically, this passage describes Satan suffering one defeat after another. He's like wily e. Coyote. I almost called this sermon the biggest loser. Because in the grand scheme of things, that's what the devil is. He's constantly losing. But perhaps a better way to put it is that he's the sorest loser. The sorest loser. We, we get this way. I get this way in my overly competitive nature. If I'm playing a game, and I love a close, fair, competitive game, but if I lose over and over and over and over again, <laughs> the devil hates that he keeps losing. And he's throwing a tantrum, a hissy fit. And Revelation's goal here is for us to see why he's so angry, why he's so angry at us at that. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan has been thwarted, defeated, conquered, and frustrated. And so the dragon is making furious war against us. The devil's making furious war against God's people. Woe to you, earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short and he's still being frustrated. So the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's making war on us now. So if we are really at war, what should we do about this? First, we need to be continually aware of this reality, right? To, to wake up from our slumber. Be sober-minded, alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And we need to know we have an enemy constantly trying to trip us up to trying to keep us apathetic, trying to keep us enslaved, trying to keep us joyless, trying to keep us half-hearted, trying to keep us disengaged, trying to keep us silent. And therefore, we need to wake up, and then we need to get up and fight, to fight our sin, to fight the enemy. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James says. We need to, to stand firm and stop giving ground over to the enemy. We need to put on the armor of God daily. Truth and peace and faith and salvation, the word of God. Most of all, this means leaning into God's strength instead of our own. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of 
of his might. Praying at all times, that's how Ephesians 6 ends, because we know we need his power at all times. Now, notice that in all the responses I just suggested, I never said we should be scared. Satan's a, a lethal, angry enemy that we underestimate to our own peril. But a sore loser is still a loser. And from eternity's perspective, he's going to be a colossal failure. Unlike the lamb. Unlike the lamb with his conquering blood. Our lamb is a dragon slayer. And so, the devil's rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. His doom's already arrived, lying in a manger. Heavenly Father, you wake us up today. We have grown lax in this battle, complacent, tired, discouraged. You show us how you have conquered. Help us to trust in your blood and in your strength. For it's not our blood that will win the enemy or defeat the enemy but it's the blood of the Lamb. We come back to that today. We put ourselves under your protection, and we pray, deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen.